Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Killer Astrology. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm back from a long hiatus to discuss some real issues that are happening in the world right now. This episode and the next two episodes are part of a short current crime series where I'll discuss relevant topics currently in the news. This first episode is on the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which, until June 24th of this year, gave women access not just to abortions, but to life-saving health care. While this episode isn't about a specific killer or criminal, it's relevant to us because of the implications that the recent decision has on all of us, and the issues it exposes, or reminds us of, within our legal and social systems. Before we start, I want to say a few things. Number one, this episode will begin with a few stories about events that have happened very recently to people in this country, and they may be hard to hear, so I just want to point that out. Number two, I am not in any way trying to push either side of the abortion argument. I have been told that I have a hard time keeping my feelings about things to myself, which isn't too shocking given my Cancer Moon and my Mercury-Uranus conjunction, but I do need to say that while my views on this topic may be obvious, they're not meant to alter anyone else's beliefs. And lastly, I use the term pregnant women throughout this podcast, but I recognize that there are many people who don't identify as women and can also get pregnant and can also have abortions. So the commentary in this episode applies to the whole group. Moving on, the recent Supreme Court decision has big implications. There is now a much greater risk that thousands of women, thousands of our sisters, friends, mothers, nieces, cousins, teachers, doctors, co-workers, many of the people we love and respect could be considered criminals for making decisions involving their health care or for not making decisions about their health care at all, but for accidentally or naturally losing a pregnancy. As many of us know, enforcing laws against abortion may deter some pregnant women from seeking the procedure, but will most likely just encourage more dangerous abortions. Those who choose to get an abortion illegally will be risking their health and their livelihood. But they're not the only women at risk without Roe v. Wade. The door is now wide open for women to be punished for losing their fetus for reasons other than abortion. Legal consequences for pregnancy loss have already been happening. In many states throughout the U.S., women have been brought up on charges for having miscarriages or stillbirths. It's happened in Arkansas, and Virginia, and Indiana, and Alabama, and California, and New York, and all within the past 15 years while Roe v. Wade was active. Women have been indicted on various charges for losing their fetuses for a variety of reasons. They've even gone to jail after seeking medical attention for a miscarriage or a stillbirth, sometimes when it could not be proven to be caused by how they cared for their pregnancies. Marche Jones, a black woman from Alabama, was shot in the stomach during an argument with another woman, and she miscarried. While the perpetrator got off unscathed, Marche was indicted by a grand jury on manslaughter charges. The reason? She shouldn't have gotten into a fight while she was knowingly pregnant. Another woman, Jennifer Jorgensen, who is white and from New York, was indicted a year after she got into an accident that caused enough trauma for her baby to die after an emergency C-section. She wasn't wearing her seatbelt and was claimed to have been driving recklessly. She was actually indicted on three counts of manslaughter because the two people in the car that she had hit had died. But interestingly, the only manslaughter charge that stuck was the one for the loss of her baby after it was born. She was 34 weeks pregnant at the time of the accident, 
and the injury was caused when she fell onto her steering wheel from the force of the crash. The baby died six days after birth. Bebe Shuai, a Chinese immigrant living in Indiana, was arrested in 2011 after giving birth to a baby who died shortly after. Bebe had been rushed to the hospital after a suicide attempt during which she ingested rat poison. Her baby was born and placed on life support but would not survive, and in her grief she was arrested on murder charges. In South Carolina in 2001, Regina McKnight, a 21-year-old black woman, had a stillbirth. She had been using cocaine during her pregnancy, and even though the stillbirth was shown later to have been caused by an infection, she was charged with murder and given a sentence of 20 years in prison. Then there's the case of Ann O'Hare Binham, a white woman from Arkansas who had a stillbirth in the bathtub at her mom's trailer and brought the baby to the hospital two days later. Ann had ingested the drug misoprostol, which is the drug in abortion pills, because she mistakenly thought it would induce labor. She'd been hiding her pregnancy from her family because she believed she would be kicked out of her mother's house if she were to be found out. She was preparing to give the baby up for adoption and wanted to speed up the process because she was afraid she'd become too attached to it if she waited any longer. She was charged with concealing a birth and abuse of a corpse. In all of the cases that I've mentioned, the charges were eventually overturned, but in many cases not for years. For example, the manslaughter charges against Jennifer Jorgensen weren't dropped until 2015. The accident happened in 2008. In the court document from the appeal, it's explained that the appeal was successful because it was not the goal of state law to hold a pregnant woman accountable for her behavior that accidentally resulted in the death of their fetus, even after it was born. However, the court document states, quote, the issue is strictly one of statutory interpretation, end quote. And therein lies our challenge. Today and in the future, with rights now rolled back 50 years, what will happen to women who find themselves in similar situations or situations that are a little different than the ones I've mentioned here? Data shows that miscarriages occur in up to 25% of pregnancies for any number of reasons. And the infant mortality rate, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, was an average of 5.4 deaths per 1,000 births in 2020, though it was higher for most women of color and over 1% for black women. What will happen to women in the most conservative states, women in the most marginalized communities, who will lose their fetuses, and which of those thousands or tens of thousands of women will they choose to prosecute? This is not just an issue of abortion, and it's not just a women's rights issue. It's an issue of health equity, race, class, and politics. And the right to choose is not just isolated to abortion, but also to other birthing and healthcare decisions. There are two more stories I'd like to share that I think really drive home the potential challenges of the situation we now find ourselves in. I'm not implying that the same situations will happen again. I'm just providing examples of what has happened when the legal system has interfered with women's personal health care decisions in the past. The first is the story of Angie Carter, a 27-year-old woman who, in 1988, was six months pregnant and dying of cancer in Washington, D.C., her family and her lawyers knew that she would not want to have a C-section in her sedated state, but the courts took an interest in her case. A baby born at 26 weeks is very dangerously premature, but the courts decided that Angie would have a C-section to deliver the baby. So, doctors performed the surgery, and the baby died in just two hours. Angie died in two days. In 1999, Laura Pemberton, who was living in Florida with her husband and her first child, was pregnant and about to deliver naturally. 
She had delivered her previous child by C-section, and the state believed that it was too dangerous to the fetus to deliver naturally. So, the police showed up at her house, strapped her legs together to hold the fetus in, and took her to the hospital where a C-section was mandated. A hearing was already in process by the time she'd gotten to the hospital, and in it her wishes were completely negated. She had the baby by C-section under a court mandate, and later went on to have three more children all through natural birth. It should be noted that many of the recent stories of prosecutions against pregnant women involve some additional circumstances other than a simple miscarriage or a stillbirth, and they are outliers, but they still happened, and they are frightening examples of what could be more frequent occurrences in a future without Roe v. Wade. The states now have complete authority over abortion regulations, and it's state laws that have led to the circumstances we've just discussed. The bottom line is that this change illuminates how much power the judicial system has over a woman's right to choose, not just whether to have an abortion, but how and when to deliver her babies and the level of autonomy she has in making her own healthcare decisions. Now, again, it's not my place to tell anyone what to believe. But what is important for us all to understand, whether we agree with the Supreme Court's decision or not, is just how impactful this reversal is to real people. The states have always had their own laws on this subject, but there was some overarching standard to abide by. Now, there's none. So, deep breath. And while we're processing all of that, let's backtrack to the origins of Roe v. Wade. The case began in 1969, when a 21-year-old Texas woman named Norma McCorvey sought an abortion after her third pregnancy. She was a poor white woman who had dropped out of high school in grade 9 and was struggling with addiction. She had already had two children, both of whom were adopted, the first by Norma's mother and the second by another family. By the time she became pregnant with her third child, Norma had decided she did not want to go through with another pregnancy, especially not at a time when being pregnant could significantly impact her ability to get a job and support herself. She wanted to terminate her pregnancy, but that was illegal in Texas. So, she was left with two options, procuring an abortion illegally in her home state or leaving Texas to get one legally, without as much risk. But both of those options were expensive. Norma was directed to two female lawyers who had wanted to take on a case to fight the restrictive Texas law, and she agreed to have them take her case. She was five months pregnant when she agreed to work with attorneys Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, who would go on to argue in favor of abortion rights at the Supreme Court trial, after the Texas court system had ruled against them. The Roe v. Wade decision wouldn't come until 1973, four years after Norma brought her case forward. She had had her baby and placed her up for adoption in that time. Roe v. Wade was actually heard on the same day as a case called Doe v. Bolton, which came out of Virginia. Both cases asserted that prohibiting abortion conflicted with the 14th Amendment, which outlines citizens' rights to privacy, though to someone who's not a lawyer, it actually doesn't appear to be about privacy at all, so I had to look into that. I'm going to read some of the 14th Amendment text directly from the Constitution as it's written on the National Archives website. The amendment is divided into five sections, the first of which reads, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, end quote. The key phrase here is equal protection. Because of that phrase, this amendment is, in essence, a non-discrimination amendment. It affirms that all United States citizens, regardless of race, class, or gender, are afforded the same protections under the Constitution, that fundamental rights are fundamental for all citizens. And that's where privacy comes in. Quoting from Russell Galloway's Basic Equal Protection Analysis in the Santa Clara Law Review, The test for determining whether a particular right is fundamental is whether the right is explicitly or implicitly guaranteed by the Constitution. And the non-interpretive right of privacy is a fundamental right because the court has held that it is protected by the due process clauses, end quote. In really simple terms, this means that something becomes a right if the Supreme Court has ruled in previous cases that it is so. And then that previous ruling is a precedent for any cases that come after. Privacy became protected under the 14th Amendment with the 1965 case Griswold v. Connecticut, when the Supreme Court ruled that based on the text in the 1st, 3rd, and 4th Amendments, citizens of the United States have a right to privacy. The 14th Amendment was the basis for a number of other Supreme Court decisions, including Brown v. the Board of Education, which integrated schools, and other cases during the Civil Rights Movement. It was also a basis for Oberfell v. Hodges in 2015, which legalized same-sex marriage. Due process is one of the reasons why this decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is so impactful. If a case that set precedent for other cases, like Roe did, is overturned, then the precedent, and therefore the right, no longer exists. Ultimately, the 1973 Roe decision determined that abortion did fall under the 14th Amendment and that women could make their own health decisions under the right to privacy. However, it did also state that the states were able to maintain interest in protecting what they refer to as potential life. And the political debating on abortion that we've seen in the past few decades is a result of that clause. Though Roe v. Wade determined that abortion was a right for U.S. citizens, the issue has continued to be bounced around the justice system, as we've seen. The 1973 decision still allowed states to enforce regulations in the second and third trimesters of pregnancy, as long as they took into account that abortion may be necessary to save a pregnant woman's life. So, the states continued to enforce their own regulations as they could, and one case in particular made it to the Supreme Court after the 1973 precedent. The famous case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey challenged Pennsylvania's Abortion Control Act of 1982, which included provisions around informed consent, reporting practices for clinics, a 24-hour waiting period to give information to the patient, gaining parental consent if the person receiving the abortion was a minor, and, finally, that a woman would sign a legal document stating that she had informed her husband that she'd be having an abortion. The Supreme Court heard the case in 1992, and in its ruling it maintained that abortion was a constitutional right. But it did allow for all the other Pennsylvania provisions, except for the one about informing the husband, and thank God for that. In the decades following Roe v. Wade, the right to an abortion became more and more of a partisan issue for various complex political reasons. And now, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey are officially reversed, and for many Americans, it feels like the human condition has been overtaken by the political agenda. For others, it's a victory. 
On December 1, 2021, the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization was argued in front of the Supreme Court. Jackson Women's Health is an abortion clinic in Mississippi that sued the state on the premise that its Gestational Age Act, which was enacted in 2018 to outlaw abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, violated the 14th Amendment right to an abortion under the precedence of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The counter-argument was that those two cases were, quote, wrongly decided, end quote, and the Republican-appointed Supreme Court majority agreed. Reading from the syllabus of the case, the majority decided after review that, quote, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. And so we find ourselves here. Through the lens of astrology, why did this happen now? Before we get into that, I'm just going to give a little bit of background on my interpretation of the U.S.'s birth chart, which we won't be going into in depth. The chart I use for the U.S. is the July 4th, 1776 chart with a time of 4.50 p.m. in Philadelphia. That chart has the sun in 13 degrees Cancer and Saturn in 14 degrees Libra. There are a lot of other things going on in the chart, but my main point is the interpretation I'm holding in the back of my mind is that, in one sentence, the United States is a paternalistic society with a central theme of conflict when trying to balance justice, authority, and humanitarianism or altruism. So, back to the question, why now? Well, now is actually the time of the eighth Saturn return for the United States Constitution. The Constitution was signed on September 17, 1787, and it's a Virgo sun with Saturn in 23 degrees of Aquarius. To me, the fact that the Constitution is a Virgo is so fitting that it's almost comical. Like, you know when something is just so right that you kind of have to laugh? (laughs) Or maybe that's just me. But that's how I feel about the Constitution being a Virgo. Virgo is super detail-oriented. It likes rules and regulations and contracts. It likes to have a plan and a set of rules to follow. And that's just what the Constitution is, a schedule of guidelines by which the judicial system is contracted to abide. And interestingly, but not at all surprisingly, the Constitution chart has Mercury and Venus in a close conjunction also in the sign of Virgo. Mercury rules communication, data, and exchanges of information, and Venus rules values and desires and currency. And when you combine the two planets, you get a contract, a tangible promise in the form of a written agreement about what two parties or two entities own and owe to each other. We typically think of this exchange when we think about money. When we make an arrangement to take out a loan, for example, we have a written document, Mercury, about how we plan to exchange our currency, Venus. In the case of the Constitution, we have a contract about the rights and privileges, which are the currency, awarded by the government to the American people. Another place we see a conjunction between Venus and Mercury is in the signing of the 14th Amendment, another contract. Venus and Mercury were conjunct in Cancer, and when you lay the chart of the 14th Amendment on top of the chart for the United States, you can see how the 14th Amendment became woven into the fabric of the country. This amendment was ratified within the period of the U.S.'s solar return, Venus return, Mercury return, and when Uranus was conjunct the U.S.'s sun. Now, I mentioned that the Constitution is in its eighth Saturn return. 
The Saturn return is a time of revision. It takes into consideration all of the paths we've taken up to a certain point, and during the return, some paths abruptly end, and others emerge to send us on our way to new experiences. This is what's happening right now for the Constitution. Saturn is saying that it's time for some of the contract's provisions to be reviewed and revised. And this happens on a regular basis, even not in the return. In fact, if you look back at the timing of when each amendment was ratified, the majority of them were affirmed within a year of either a Saturn square, opposition, or return. This Saturn process isn't inherently good or bad. It just is. And the truth about a Saturn return, whether for a structure like the Constitution or a person like you and me, is that it can feel really bad when it's happening, and its gifts may not be visible until it's over. For a concrete example, I'll present you with a little portion of my own Saturn return. I was in a relationship for 10 years, married for four and a half of those years, and then my marriage pretty abruptly ended. I wouldn't call that experience a lot of fun. There was a lot of drama that occurred, which is 90% of the reason I took such a long break from this podcast. But at the end of it, I was gifted with a totally new path in life, and I now see why everything happened the way it did. The point is that Saturn has an agenda. And sometimes we're in the dark about where it will leave us, but we do know that some kind of big change is on the other end. Now, Saturn is important in this process that we're going through right now, but we can't overlook the fact that we are also currently experiencing the Pluto return for the United States, which won't be complete until 2023. Pluto holds our traumas and a lot of other things that we'll definitely be discussing in the next two episodes of this series. But when Pluto returns, those traumas come back to the surface. The Pluto return is a slow process, and it's been happening for a few years now. And we can think back to all of the issues that have surfaced in that time, from racial inequity to gaps in the healthcare system to violence of all kinds to problems in so many other areas of life. The overturning of Roe versus Wade is connected to many of those issues, and of those, gender inequality is a big one. The Constitution was written by white men for white men, and if you look at the original unedited text, that is very, very, very clear. Now, in the time when Pluto is returning to its original position in the chart for the United States, we're seeing just how our country has changed and also not changed in that time. Those traumas are coming back to the light. This is an opportunity to decide whether we want to take our traumas with us into the future, into the next Pluto cycle, or leave them behind. That idea is a really big problem to grapple with. We struggle with that in our personal lives as individual human beings. And it's an even bigger one to work out as a nation comprised of millions and millions of people. With Jupiter in Aries right now, we are likely all having our own unique and strong reactions to this decision. Just as we had them when Roe versus Wade was originally signed, Jupiter was in Aries at that time too. The position of Jupiter right now reflects that this ruling impacts the individual lives of real people in the most personal of ways. And the astrology reflects that we're reacting accordingly. As always, I could say so much more about the astrology here, but this has been a long episode and I don't want to overwhelm you. To all of my listeners, whether you're a loyal fan or this is your first time listening, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here and sticking around while I took a break to get a handle on my life during my Saturn return. Things are finally evening out and I anticipate that I will be on a much more regular schedule very, very soon. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Killer Astrology. I'll be back soon with episode two of the current crime series. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you enjoy Killer Astrology, please share the podcast with your friends and consider leaving a five-star rating. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Killer Astrology Podcast or follow me, Laura, at Laura Carey Astrology. Visit lauracareyastrology.com to book a reading and killerastrologypodcast.com for sources and more information about the show.